This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. At about 9 p.m. on this day, 324 years ago, a huge length of the Juan de Fuca plate slid and crunched under the North American plate. The resulting magnitude 9 or so earthquake violently shook the Pacific Northwest and created a tsunami that hit the coast of Japan. A Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, the big one as we call it now, has not happened since then. But the historical record tells us that it will. They hit on average every 500 years or so. Sometimes there have been as few as 200 years between quakes. While indigenous peoples in the Northwest have oral traditions that reference a great quake, geologists didn't really piece this story together until about 40 years ago. And it's only in more recent decades that elected leaders, emergency managers, homeowners, all of us, have begun to reckon with what this really means. We're going to spend the hour today talking about our current level of CSZ preparedness, about where we've come from and where we still have to go. Althea Rizzo starts us off. She is a Geologic Hazards Program Coordinator at the Oregon Department of Emergency Management, and she joins us once again. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you for having me on today. Can you remind us what the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake is going to feel like, what it's going to do in terms of of scope and damage? Sure. So we can look to see what's happened elsewhere. Um, for instance, in 2011, the Japanese event is pretty much what we can expect to see here in the Pacific Northwest when Cascadia does go. Um, it runs from the, the subduction zone runs from Northern California up to off of Vancouver Island up in British Columbia. So the shaking would last two to four minutes, depending on where you are. And the closer you are to the coastline, the stronger the shaking is going to be. And then after the shaking, we are going to see that very large tsunami come in um, anywhere from 15 minutes, depending on where you are. Um, And then we will see aftershocks for uh, quite a long time after the main shock. It takes centuries to build up the stress and it takes more than one earthquake to relieve that stress. The two to four minutes is one of the things that gets me every time. And we're talking about potentially very violent shaking, not for 10 seconds, not for 20 seconds, but for minutes on end. Yes. Yeah, so when the subduction zone starts to rupture, it can start in the middle and work towards the end, or it can start um, at one of the ends and work you know, north or south. Um, And that's just a long distance for that rupture to kind of unzip. And so the shaking will last much longer than smaller crustal style earthquakes that we're more familiar with from California. You've been in charge of this geologic hazards program in Oregon for 15 plus years. What has changed over the course of that time in terms of awareness of the earthquake that we're talking about? I think the biggest change is that the acceptance that Cascadia will happen and that there is a lot that we can do to prepare. And we have done quite a bit to prepare for this earthquake. When I first started, um, low these many years ago, uh, it was oftentimes um, part of my um, 
process was just to educate people that, yes, this does happen here on the Oregon coast. Huh. So, and, and you feel that that, that level of ignorance, n- not through any fault of, of the public, but just because this w- was relatively new information to the public, that's no longer necessary. People at least know that it's going to happen. Um, well, for some people, it's their first introduction to Cascadia, but it's much less of a heavy lift to convince them that um, it will actually happen someday. Um, there's so much information out there um, through a lot of the work that OPB has done in the past. Um, our school systems, our you know, our first responders, you know, they're all been a part of this process of of making Cascadia awareness much more widespread. How much has awareness, though, translated to preparedness to action? Well, I think that it is kind of uneven over time. Um, after there is a large event somewhere else in the world, we do see an uptick of um, activities around preparedness. But we also see upticks after large wildfires. People get more interested in preparedness. You know, so any of the natural or um, things that we're dealing with here in the Pacific Northwest all help feed into that sort of uh, culture of preparedness. Hmm. What are our biggest physical vulnerabilities right now? Right now, it's our built environment. This is our roads, our utility systems, um, our manufacturing, our building stock, you know, our homes, our apartment buildings, our office buildings, our schools. Much of our built environment was built before we had seismic codes in Oregon. And a very large proportion of it was built before we even knew about plate tectonics, let alone the Cascadia subduction zone. Um, so we have a lot of retrofitting and replacing to do, um, but we've seen examples around the world of other countries that have accomplished what we need to do here in Oregon. We can look to Japan, to Chile, to Mexico, to New Zealand, um, for examples of great work that we can emulate here so that uh, we are able to respond to and recover from a Cascadia earthquake much quicker. Can you give us a sense, though, for the cost here? I mean, we live in a state, in some ways we live in a country where deferred regular maintenance of our infrastructure is a kind of international embarrassment in, in the, the rich, developed world. And we're not just talking about, you know, making sure that, that bridges don't crumble from regular use. We're talking about retrofitting them for a, a major seismic event. What's the gulf between how much money we regularly spend on, on regular upkeep and what it would take to make the infrastructure you're talking about withstand the big one yeah so that that's an impossible number to figure um because we can never be perfectly prepared but instead of asking what the total cost is is we need to look at this sort of as a long-term project so we don't have to spend everything within five years um but if we look at it Uh, In the long term, say over a 50 year period, like what ODOT has done with the transportation system, 
you know, we can spread that cost out over 50 years. And if you replace 2% each year, then in 50% or sorry, in 50 years, you will have replaced or retrofitted 100%. So looking at this as a long-term project makes it much easier to look for funding sources. Um, but, you know, in all honesty, this is a very large ticket item and it is in the billions of dollars for the cost over time. But in other words, the 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 main point you're making there, if I hear you correctly, is that every time we work on any kind of project, a, a, a road, a bridge, a, a hospital, a school, a, a, a firehouse, we should be thinking about um, seismic resilience. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Um, because, you know, we're constantly um, remodeling and refitting. <laughs> um, when you look at even, for instance, a single family home, if you are going to be redoing your kitchen, you're probably going to spend more on that or granite countertop than you would on seismically retrofitting that home so it doesn't fall down during Cascadia. Mm. Bol- bolting um, it to its foundation. Right. And bolting the roof to the walls. Um, if you have a masonry chimney. Um, making sure that that won't fall down and and cause damage. So when you're looking at cost, if you're fixing something for another purpose, if you have to re-roof a school, for instance, it's not that much more expensive to do the seismic retrofits when you're already doing that work. But the the flip side of that is, is that's something that you're not going to have to pay completely for replacing after Cascadia, um, so, you know, do you spend a little bit now or a lot later? We kind of need to shift our mentality around how we think about what our culture does over a long term. We asked our listeners uh, a couple days ago how they have been thinking about personal readiness. We're going to hear some voices over the course of this hour. Let's listen to Margarita from Tualatin. I am preparing an earthquake uh, kit Um, I am still missing 28 gallons of water, and I don't know how to get that and store that. So I would love to hear other people's ideas of how they're doing that. I also need to get my doctor to give me more uh, medication for the kit and convince them to give me two weeks' worth of prescription uh, just to store. So I would love to hear what other people are doing. Thank you. Althea, what are the basics of what people should have in their earthquake kits? And I I can maybe call it more broadly, you know, emergency readiness kits. Yes, because um, we kind of look at it as if you're ready for Cascadia, you're pretty much ready for everything here. Um, And it kind of goes back to what do you need for being self-sufficient for two to three weeks after something like this? Um, But, you know, it comes down to food, water, shelter, medication, if you have them. Um, How do you stay warm? How do you stay dry? Uh, How do you feed yourself? She mentioned the fact that, you know, how do you store 28 gallons of water? Um, Well, maybe you don't have room to store 28 gallons of water, but you can plan ways to make clean water if necessary, you know, you can you can buy filtration systems, you can buy um, purification tablets. Um, so there's a number of ways that you can make clean water if you can if you can get access to it afterwards. Um, you know, you don't have to store, uh, you know, hundreds of, of gallons. Um, but 
having multiple ways to to solve that problem is is going to be one of the keys um, when we're looking at um, food. You know, if you have, you know, your stores of freeze-dried stuff, you know, you can go to Costco, for instance, and buy a bucket of emergency food. Well, that's that's good. But think about other ways that you can um, add things to that, like gardening, if you have the space, um, looking at uh, canning your own food. You know, there's a lot of different ways to solve the same kinds of problems. Um, and so... We want folks who can prepare to prepare. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is Janet from Cedar Hills. What I've done to prepare for the big one is, first of all, get earthquake insurance on my house. And I have purchased certain supplies to make it easier for me to cook and see when we lose power. I've got a lantern and a propane-powered stove for cooking food. I think the next thing I'll purchase will be a small generator that will be powered by either gasoline or propane so that I can charge my phone and possibly some lights. Finally, I think um, people may not realize that whatever happens will last for many, many weeks and possibly months. If you think about what happened during the recent ice storm with folks out of power for a week and no internet or no water, this will be much, much worse. I do hope people start paying attention and making plans. Althea, uh, Janet is one of a couple people who, when they called in, referenced last week's ice storm. If that storm, as bad as it was, and it was it was deadly and very disruptive to a lot of people, it, it's it was nothing like the the devastation that y- you and other experts are are telling us is going to happen when the big one hits. It was a tiny quiz in some ways, and it was even it was announced ahead of time. I mean, we didn't know exactly which trees would get ice and which would fall, but we were told there is likely going to be ice. I mean, it's nothing like the earthquake, which will just hit us when you know we have no no warning. How would you? assess, if we think of the ice storm as a kind of of a test, how do you think we did? I think that we uh, do better each time. Um, I think that, you know, ice storms, they do give you warning. Um, But I think that the way we kind of look at it is, you know, when we're doing our preparedness activities, um, what can we do? sort of put in that toolkit that we can use now. For instance, you mentioned um, having a way to cook using propane. Well, a lot of Oregonians are campers and hikers. So, you know, you have a lot of the equipment already if you camp or hike um, that you would need after Cascadia. And, And so, you know, how do we make preparedness integrated into the way we live? Um, rather than, you know, making this sort of uh, sacred altar in our garage that just sits there and hopefully we never have to use. In other words, uh, like, so, for example, like if, if people are campers, if they do have a, a, a propane stove for car camping, say, the suggestion is to is just have that in a place where it could be doubled up. It, it could be part of, of your go kit or it could just be waiting there for you to go camping. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that kind of goes back to uh, your caller about the 28 gallons. 
Um, you know, we do go camping fairly um, often in the summertime. So we just kind of cycle through our water that way. When we go camping, we take water from what's our supply. But when we get done camping, then we replace it. So it's it's just a part of the way, you know, we we live our life today. We just have sort of built in some systems that if, you know, a bad day happens, um, we will have those supplies, you know, and that this is for people who can and have the resources for that. There's a large number of people that, that don't have the resources. And that's why we really encourage people who do have the resources to do the preparedness and, and be able to be self-sustaining for two to three weeks after Cascadia. Um, because there's going to be a lot of people that don't have that ability today to do that Um and I think that that will probably be discussed later on in the show. Yeah, we're going to but, talk about the, those equity issues in, in just a bit with somebody else who's at your office in the Department of Emergency Management. But I, I want to turn to back to this, the question of well, I said we're not going to have any warning about this, and, and I that actually remains a little bit of an open question to me because a couple of years ago, three years ago, we did talk about the Shake Alert system going live in Oregon. How much warning is that going to give us? So the shake alert um, system uh, quickly identifies when an earthquake has started and then sends out an alert. And you can get that on your phone. It can go to automated systems like um, shutting off water valves in, in your uh, community's water supply. Um, but that's tens of seconds of warning. Um, that gives you enough time to, you know, your duck cover and hold on before the shaking starts. Um, there is no way currently to predict when earthquakes happen. Um, the science is simply not there yet. Um, so the shake alert system, it's a great system. Everyone should have their phones enabled to receive that. And, you know, just take these opportunities during like during the ice storms and those kinds of things to practice what you would do if Cascadia happened. Althea Rizzo, thank you very much for starting us off today. I appreciate it. Always happy to be here with you. That's Althea Rizzo, Geologic Hazards Program Coordinator at the Oregon Department of Emergency Management. If you're just tuning in, we are talking today about Oregon's level of preparedness for the big one, the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake that could happen in three minutes or in three centuries. We turn now to another official at the Oregon Department of Emergency Management. Natasha Fox is the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access Accessibility Coordinator there. They join me now. Welcome to Think Out Loud. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on. How did this IDEA coordinator position, your position, come to be a part of the Emergency Management Department? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I'll preface my answer with uh, some background that I myself am very new to the position. I joined the agency in October of 2023. So I'm just learning about the, the background and history of the position um, right now. Um, but I will say that uh, my understanding is that as a result, in part at least, of the 2020 uh, Labor Day wildfires that we experienced here, um, that it, a kind of ad hoc um, inclusion and diversity and equity coordinator position arose from, um, from that experience and from the identification of a number of uh, equity issues that came to the fore during that experience. And my colleague Althea probably has more background on on the specifics there, but uh, but that is how I understand 
the uh, the position's history. You know, I can imagine somebody thinking about a huge earthquake as a kind of um, both literal and metaphorical leveling event, something that 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 the the earth shakes and rolls, and everybody is hit with the same geologic fact. The the very existence of your position suggests that that it's not that that's an inaccurate way to to think about it. Why is that idea wrong? Yeah, that's a really good point. We often think about in the news media and elsewhere that disasters are sort of equalizing events, that everyone experiences them in the same way, that they that they kind of level the playing field in some way because we're all exposed to them at the same time and, and kind of in the same place often. But but yeah, like you said, um, disasters really are the result of a trigger event like an earthquake or other hazard event. And whatever exists in the society where that event strikes prior to that uh, trigger event. So if there are social uh, barriers and inequities and challenges that are there already, the disaster or the hazard trigger event itself really exposes those and uh, and exacerbates them. Yeah. What, what are examples that come to mind that, that really show this? Well, I think in the U.S., probably one of the most um, well-known examples would be Hurricane Katrina and um, and the very uh, sort of heartbreaking visuals that we saw coming in the following days after that event of people in the Superdome, um, overwhelming representation of Black communities there who were uh, literally and figuratively left out of the planning process. And the result of that was uh, was the really unspeakable human suffering that we saw um, I, my background is in experiences of the 2011 disasters in Japan, and uh, and that topic has come up in this interview already, but uh, there's some good research showing how communities were differentially impacted in that, in that particular disaster as well. Um, I did my PhD research in 2018 with LGBT communities in the Tohoku region where that disaster hit. And, uh, and learned about the types of challenges people faced accessing, for example, evacuation shelters, uh, bathing facilities, and, uh, and just some of the barriers that people encountered because of the, again, existing um, inequities that that community faces every day. What's one of the barriers that, that you identified that, that you studied? Uh, well, my community research partners were kind enough to educate me about um, the fact that, for example, bathing facilities were set up according to male and female genders, which is typical in Japanese culture. Um, but when you have an emergency where everyone needs a bath, everyone needs to use the bathroom, everyone needs to access those basic um, basic needs, um, setting up the, the facilities in that way really alienated some folks, for example, transgender people who didn't strongly identify with either category. So that created a, a lot of unnecessary barriers for people in that community. So when you translate the, the, those um, versions in Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans or mm -hmm. the, the, the Japanese earthquake and tsunami, when you translate them here... What are examples of, of the ways in which you think a Cascadia earthquake could play out differently among, say, mm -hmm. marginalized communities in Oregon? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. Um, I think key to understanding how those particular examples really played out is the fact that 
the voices of people who those impacts were disproportionately placed on, they simply weren't present in the planning process. So one of the key factors in preparing for this particular Cascadia event is we have to ask ourselves whose voices are missing when we're making these plans and, and really develop from the very beginning the mechanisms for people from diverse communities across our state to, to provide their input, to provide their expertise, to educate us so-called experts on, on what their needs are and what their contributions can be to making our state more resilient across communities. Hmm. So you're talking about um, pre-disaster planning right now. Mm-hmm. How might that affect the, the response itself? Well, the response really is is only as good as what you've already got in place. Um, so so key to really building a strong and robust and resilient response is having those relationships and networks and mechanisms for um, collaboration and and community support in place. And that means putting time and effort and energy and resources into building those networks now so that we don't have to catch ourselves flat footed on our worst day. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is Veronica, who called in from Gaston. I have go bags in uh, both cars. Well, I have uh, emergency equipment in both cars, and we have go bags in the garage, and uh, we have the, our RV uh, set up with emergency equipment and clothes. We have blankets. Uh, one thing I don't have is water. My husband, uh, we had some problems with the uh, sun damage to our water bottles and so I keep pestering my husband to put water in them so that I am working on he keeps saying we've got plenty in the RV and we've got a water heater and a bathtub we can fill up before any water problems happen so I hope that works and uh, yes I think it's important to do this Veronica there was talking about um, go bags in their cars and in their RV how do you think about emergency response and emergency planning for people who who cannot get around easily, people with disabilities or mobility issues? That's a really important question. Um, One of the strategies that we're working on now at the Department of Emergency Management is, again, in order to bring those experiences and, and, and levels of community expertise to the planning conversations, we have to first create the ways in which those people in those communities can actually provide that expertise and that lived experience. And one of the ways that we do that is through collaboration with um, with groups such as the Disability Emergency Management Advisory Committee, which is a um, interagency advising committee uh, on just that. Um, you know, what will what will people's needs be in the access and functional needs community across the state? How do we incorporate that knowledge and 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 expertise into the ways in which we plan? Oftentimes, disaster planning has been um, a, a kind of let's do the best for the most philosophy. So so casting a very, very broad net and and just hoping we can kind of, you know, include as many people as possible by having this one size fits all approach. But but that approach is really changing now. And we, we're, we're learning more through research and engagement in communities that we really need to start with a targeted approach and build out from there. And so our, our collaborations with access and functional needs communities across Oregon, another program is, um, is the Community Emergency Response tr- uh, Training Curriculum, CERT, 
that we are also co-developing with the Oregon uh, Heart and Hearing Services Department on on uh, providing um, CERT training curriculum to folks in uh, ASL communities, so American Sign Language communities. The entire course we're working on developing to be taught in ASL. Um, you know, there are a number of different ways to kind of incorporate that knowledge into planning in a way that is targeted that we can then build out from to to address other communities needs as well. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is Bruce who called in from Beaverton. My housemates who tease me because I'm a bit of a prepper were really happy. We had an indoor propane heater and a camp stove when our power went out recently. Also, we live in an apartment, and we are not allowed to store enough water for three people for six to eight weeks, which is what um, geographers and and researchers say we might need. So uh, I just wanted to put that out there. I'm going to work to get that changed on a, I don't know, a legislative level or whatever. Bruce there's among other things, talking about apartment space. He, he mentioned six to eight weeks. Uh, the, the, we should say that the the amount of, of time that we, we've heard much more often is two to three weeks in terms of thinking mm-hmm. about self-sufficiency, thinking about medicine, food, water. So, But in any case, apartment space is, is one big issue he brings up. But another, which you know we heard a little bit from Althea Rizzo, is just is poverty and food insecurity. We cannot, as a society, expect people who are struggling today to put food on the table to have the resources to to store enough non-perishable food that they could eat for two or three weeks. Who is thinking systemically about the implications of that? That's such an important question. And I think that is a, is a, is a great example of how we have to kind of shift the lens of preparedness to begin again with people whose everyday lives are are um, impacted by different different types of vulnerability. And and you talked about people who are economically disadvantaged. Of course, we can't expect that someone struggling to put food on their kids' table tonight is going to be able to stockpile two weeks of food. That's not reasonable. Um, so, so we are thinking about this, and this is something on our on our very very top of our agenda. Um, I'm actually collaborating with some folks at the Oregon Food Bank to come up with um, some strategies for how those types of resources that are designed to alleviate everyday vulnerability and everyday barriers to resilience can also support the type of resilience to to an acute natural hazard like we're talking about. If that means potentially allowing um, SNAP benefits recipients to have a special um, go bag uh, category of food that they're able to then, uh, you know, collect over time, whether that means working with the Oregon Food Bank to potentially um, set aside a certain amount of resources for people so that they can help prepare. It's, it's really about those partnerships and working with the networks and agencies and, and community-based organizations that we have in order to, to bring more voices to those discussions. Natasha Fox, thanks very much. Thank you. Natasha Fox is the Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility Coordinator at the Oregon Department of Emergency Management. Coming up after a break, we're going to hear how much has changed at the Seaside School District over the last decade and how much has not changed for residents of Portland's Linton neighborhood. 
From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we are marking the anniversary of the last Cascadia Subduction Zone earthquake. It was January 26, 1700, by talking about Oregon's current state of earthquake readiness. We head to the coast now. Susan Penrod is a superintendent of the Seaside School District. That includes Seaside, Cannon Beach, and Gearhart. Two and a half years ago, after voters eventually approved a construction bond, the district opened a new campus for middle and high schoolers. Unlike the old schools, this one is above the tsunami inundation zone. Susan Penrod, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about that new campus? Yes, uh, this whole process started 30 plus years ago, and uh, it was definitely a priority for us to get all of our students out of the zone, as you said. Uh, So uh, in 2013, a bond went to our community to do that. It unfortunately did not pass. We went back in uh, 2016, and uh, it was passed and the work began. What is the, the, the higher ground school like? Well, it's not only that it's a very beautiful school with a great view, but it is really state-of-the-art from everything from its resiliency to its air filtration system and uh, and everything in between. Air filtration, so meaning uh, when we haven't talked much about about wildfires yet today, but it's it's one more example of the disasters that you're you're planning for. Correct. When you rebuilt the or I shouldn't say rebuilt built anew um, those schools what was the vision for how they might be used during an earthquake or a tsunami right well we knew our buildings needed to be safe we knew that they needed to uh, be a um, as an area for all of our community to come to as well so really thinking of it beyond um, the safety of it we also wanted our building to be really energy efficient so our middle school and our high school has some shared spaces those large spaces also give us an opportunity to um, to house people in our community in case of a disaster. To, ha- to literally, so it's I mean it's not just a gathering place, but this this is one of the high ground emergency shelters for the city. It is. We work really closely with the city of Seaside, Fire and Rescue, Providence Hospital, which is which property butts right up to ours, and we are a relocation for them in case their property is damaged. Well, so if there's if the earthquake messes up or, or destroys, say, a hospital wing, they would bring patients to the school? They would. We have one of our gyms uh, designated for that, and we've talked all about the details of how to get folks there. Huh. Um, how much have you been spreading the word to the community saying, come here in an emergency? I mean, do, do people in in Seaside know that? Well, there are several locations throughout Seaside, which are relocation areas. Um, the benefit of art is uh, we have collaborated with the city to make a water reservoir uh, because we all know that if this happens, water will probably not be drinkable. So we, uh, we have um, up to five days of water for the community, and that's been one example of our collaboration. Hmm. Let's play another voicemail. This is Stevie Ray, who called in from Portland. As a person in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of us have basic camping equipment. So uh, just right off the bat, you probably already have most of what you need, but there's always an opportunity to upgrade. So this year and this last couple of years, I really got into uh, ham radio. And there's a really great local ham radio community uh, here in 
uh, the Portland area. And also an important upgrade, uh, the one that I am currently saving up for, is the MSR water filtration. And so that would be the, the one upgrade, other than obviously get into radio, because radio is rad. <laughs> Susan Penrod, how are you at the district level planning to communicate, uh, given the fact that the massive earthquake is likely to take out lots of cell towers, maybe internet lines as well? Sure. Um, for a number of years, all of our administrators in the district have been trained on ham radio. We have a weekly um, uh, drill on that, so that it, it, that includes our staff and local community members. In addition to that, we have a radio system with um, with Providence. That's a little bit of a even a higher level one to be able to communicate with them. You know, the underlying everything you're talking about here is. I mean, we are not. We're not talking about ensuring that sixth graders are are reading and doing math. I mean, not that that's not important, but but what the implication here is that your school district is one of the the central nodes of community wide emergency response, right? I mean, that's why you're training people in how to use a ham radio. That's why you have a weeks worth of water up above the school. That's not about education. That's about the community. Is that a fair way to put it? That is. Uh, one thing I've learned through this process is emergency management and preparedness is all in the details. And you really have to think a lot about what will happen because if the event happens, you want to have so much in place so you don't have to invent that when it's happening. I can give you an example. Um, we have been working um, to have Connex storage boxes throughout our property, and uh, and we ha went and toured um, – those in the city of Cannon Beach, they have uh, they're really ahead of the time on that. Actually, for for those of us, including me, who don't don't know what a Connex storage box is, what is it? It's like a big storage box that you know sometimes you see on ships. Sometimes people are building houses out of them because they're kind of vogue right now. But um, they are secure uh, storage boxes that you can put on your property. They're still movable, um, but they're great for storing emergency supplies. Hmm. A kind of small shipping container. Exactly. And you're using them uh, in Seaside to, to store supplies for the big one. We're in the process of doing that. We're writing some grants for that and thinking about all of the implements we need, tents, food, both canned food and um, and freeze-dried food because you have to prepare that the first couple of days water might not be available to rehydrate that food. Hmm. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier that um, the, the school board, and my understanding is this is before you became superintendent, but Correct. I also assume that you're relatively familiar, familiar with this history. It took two tries um, for the community to approve a bond even knowing that that their kids were going to school in the inundation zone. What does that tell you about just our societal approach to preparing for the, the, the dual hazards on the coast of both the tsunami and the earthquake? Yeah, um, I, I think that um, 
it's all, like I said, it's all in the details. Our community is so supportive. The feedback that um, that our district received after the bond didn't pass in 2013 was really that we needed to secure a piece of property and we needed to to lower the dollar amount. One of the things you've got rid of uh, a performing arts space, is that right? Yeah, unfortunately, we're hoping to, to be able to raise funds for that. But Weyerhaeuser donated 80 acres on the ground that, that we are on. And so that made it all possible. Let's listen to another voicemail. This is Marilyn who called in from Portland. I have an earthquake preparedness business here in town. And the number one thing that I hear from my customers, basically every customer, is that they have felt overwhelmed by the process of preparing for two weeks. And I'm here to offer some words of encouragement for those of you who are motivated to prepare. Um, Just take things one step at a time and something is better than nothing. My recommendations are to start with two things, getting your water set aside. The recommendation is 14 gallons per person, but hey, a couple of gallons is better than nothing after an emergency. So just start um, and you'll get there eventually. The second thing is to create an emergency plan for you and your loved ones so that you will know how you're going to reunite and communicate after a large-scale emergency, and you'll also have important information at your fingertips. You can do this. So, Susan, I mean, that was advice for individuals largely, but I'm curious what advice you would give to other local leaders, school leaders who are less further along than you are in terms of seismic preparedness. Well, she gave good advice, take one thing at a time, and I think that can be applied here as well. Um, There's a lot of really good plans out there. FEMA, you don't have to start from scratch. Um, So being able to just assign, uh, assign your staff to specific duties train them well, collaborate with your police department, your fire and rescue, uh, your local partners with hospitals and and other areas. We have a great collaboration in Seaside. So those are the kind of details. And then learn from others. Get to know um, your folks around you, uh, your county folks, and being able to work together. Susan Penrod, thanks very much. Thank you. Susan Penrod is a superintendent of the Seaside School District. We've been talking today about earthquake readiness. We end our show today in the Portland neighborhood of Linton along the Willamette River. Sean Looney is a member of the NET or Neighborhood Emergency Team there. She joins me now. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. So for listeners who may not know, can you give us a sense for where the Linton neighborhood is? Yeah, we stretch from about the Savi Island Bridge across the river from us to um, Kittredge, which is in the industrial area of northwest Portland. Let's listen to another voicemail that that came in that is very much about your neighborhood. This is uh, from Jay from Portland, who is a local emergency manager and former chair of the Oregon Seismic Safety Policy Advisory Commission. An area I feel like we're still lacking uh, on a really big scale is the critical energy infrastructure hub. Even though the Department of Environmental Quality is working on the seismic risk assessments with the oil companies, um, my concern is we're not leveraging the seismic risk with climate change and um, environmental justice. These are all silos that we have in local government and state government that are many times competing against each other and that uh, we need to leverage what we're trying to accomplish for the seismic risk 
to bring it to bear for where we ultimately want to be uh, in the long run and look at this in a multi-generational approach. I hope we can put a big grand 2050 vision on uh, the CEI hub that aligns with many more things that we need to accomplish. Sean Looney, what unique challenges will Linton face during the big one? Well, Linton is in a particularly at-risk area because we have the CEI hub in front of us, which includes over 500 fuel tanks, 300 million gallons of fuel. And we know that the vast majority of those tanks have absolutely no safety standards. So in Linton, we have that CEI hub in front of us. Most of us have uh, Forest Park behind us. Uh, and we have the Willamette River. We have a large uh, St. Helens Highway also in front of us and the Willamette River in front of the CEI hub. So we are... Um, we are kind of caught in an area where we don't have good egress. We don't know what to expect in terms of how many of those uh, tanks are going to explode and uh, create a fire hazard. It's it's a it's a challenging place to live. We have talked about the CEI hub in the past. It, it, this is a, a hugely important issue, and in a lot of ways, a policy and and political one, which I know that you and many other people are are working hard to address. But I'm I'm curious now, in the time we have left, just to 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 zero in more on on what you're doing at the neighborhood level as a member of the neighborhood emergency team. You don't have direct control over seismically retrofitting a, a gigantic, you know, metal container of some kind of noxious fuel or gas. What can you do with your neighbors? You know, we have a, a good, uh, we have a bi-monthly newsletter, Linton Neighborhood Association, and we, and we have also have a net news uh, email that we send out. We talk about, just kind of give people reminders about food and water storage, about how to turn off their gas and their hot water heater if they need to, how to shelter in place, what to put in your go bag, uh, how to function when you don't have a working toilet. Uh, all of those things that we want to kind of help people remember that we're going to face, it's uh, it's something we do a lot, and we speak about it in our neighborhood association uh, meetings. One one of the things we've learned is that 95% of people who are rescued after a disaster are rescued by their neighbors. And uh, that's been uh, particularly learned from the Japan uh, tsunami and, and the earthquake. So we here in Linton encourage one another to get to know your neighbors, have social events, have community summer picnics, particularly find out what you and your neighbors need and what you and your neighbors already have and can share with one another. It's, it's a fascinating way to think about it, that, a, that at a community picnic, when folks are just hanging out, listening to music, you know, grilling hot dogs, that that is actually both a social event and a component of seismic readiness, of, of emergency readiness. It is. And usually with those picnics that we've had uh, several of uh, through the years, we have brochures uh, from Portland Fire and Rescue about FireWise. We have brochures, should anybody want to pick them up, about uh, NET and what the NET uh, community can 
provide for us. We have uh, many stashes of uh, supplies throughout our community, and we remind one another, by the way, the nearest stash to you is, you know, in so-and-so's backyard and so forth. So, um, yeah, they're fun events, but they also are very definitely educational. How did your neighborhood do in the ice storm last week? Well, most of us did pretty well because most of us uh, retained our power. Uh, up above us in uh, Skyline, they had a lot of power outages. One of the things that Linton also does is we coordinate with our net uh, neighbors in uh, Savi Island and up on the Skyline Ridge, and uh, we can train together and um, help one another. How are you thinking these days about helping the, the most vulnerable members of your community. I mean, this is something that we talked about with Natasha Fox at a kind of at the statewide level, but at the neighborhood level, what are you doing? You know, it's it it goes back to helping people know like Maybe Mrs. Johnson in the house near you is, uh, you know, in her 80s and uses a walker. And in the event of the earthquake, if you're okay and you're ready to exit your home, go to her house next. See if she's okay. See what you can do to help. We've heard a fair amount today about water supplies or an, the ability to, to create safe drinking water about food. Someone mentioned medicine earlier. What's something that you think people don't pay enough attention to in terms of go bags or emergency supplies? Well, I do think that there is that group of, of any neighborhood that says, I know what I need to do, and I will. I will one of these days. I'll get to the store and get a couple more gallons of water. I, I will do that. But um, they, they haven't. They haven't yet. Uh, I do encourage people to have uh, filter straws, as um, Althea or Natasha said. I can't remember which one of them. But... Um, You'll need water. I mean, we will need water and we need to remind each other and help one another. And if I, for example, have a stash of filter straws in my uh, garage, I can share those with my neighbor who may not be ready and may not have enough water. Sean Looney, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Sean Looney is a member of the Neighborhood Emergency Team for the Northwest Portland neighborhood of Linton. Coming up on the next Think Out Loud on Monday, we're going to revisit our recent conversation with Anne Patchett. Her latest book, Tom Lake, is a warm, wise, beautiful novel about family and memory. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great weekend. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford 